Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to our evening service, which won't be um, a normal service this evening, but a seminar on a subject which is very topical and um, which is important that we as Christians are able to engage with. So I do hope uh, this evening will be helpful for you. Uh, somebody that did ask me on the way in, have we got a guest speaker tonight? Um, yes, you've guessed. It, it is. It is me. Um, Next Saturday, there'll be another opportunity to engage with a topical issue, that of sexuality. And Andy Robinson, who now works for um, a Christian organization called Living Out, will be coming to lead that um, next Saturday morning. So if you are able to come, do please join us. um, Sign up on the email invite, which you should have received. Well, one of the key arguments that Christians use against assisted suicide, as we'll be looking at later, is um, the value of human life. The fact that we've been made in the image of God, and we are therefore, unlike any other creature, we are capable of a relationship with God himself. God has created everything in the world, and yet he should choose to create human beings as the pinnacle of that creation. That's an amazing truth which we often take for granted. Let me read from Genesis 1, familiar verses, I'm sure. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then from Isaiah 43, we read, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you for the world that you have created. God, you're the one who placed the stars in the sky. You know them by name. And thank you that you have created us in your image to rule over this world under your rule. We're sorry that this world is not as it should be because of the sin of our hearts. And we praise you that as we've just sung, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. Father, we live in a fallen world where there is much suffering and pain. We thank you for your concern and love for those who are suffering and for the vulnerable. Thank you that you love each human being irrespective of their abilities or achievements, that you are a God of compassion. And as we look at this difficult subject of assisted suicide this evening, we pray that you'd help us to see it as you see it. We acknowledge it will be easy to ignore it because of how complex it is, but we pray you'd help us to engage with it and approach it with the mind of Christ. Help us to value human life as you do, particularly the vulnerable. And help us to have compassion for those who are suffering and for people caring for those who are suffering. So bless our time together now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
And there is a little handout going around, so if you haven't got one of those, um, stick your hand up and Martin will, uh, will bring one for you. Looks like everybody's got one. Some of you may remember earlier in the year I did a seminar on dying well, because even amongst Christians, death is not something that is uh, talked about much, despite the fact that the Bible has a lot to say about it. And we looked at the challenges of dying and the, the opportunities of dying well. Um, some of those were the fact that we can trust more in God, that we can grow closer to God and want to be with him face to face. We can appreciate the things around us more. Death gives us that, that sensitivity to that. We can enjoy the love of other people. And we can love others and share our Christian hope with them. So hopefully we can say the same as Paul, that to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. One of the aspects of death that we didn't have the time to cover that session was um, that of assisted suicide, which is why we're coming back to that this evening. It has become a big issue in recent years with bills uh, defeated in, in Scotland and in England back in 2015. But uh, campaigners for assisted suicide continue to, to push for a change to the law uh, to enable terminally ill people to get help to kill themselves. Uh, there's currently a public consultation going on in Scotland, um, and there is a bill at the committee stage in the House of Lords. Uh, when the issue was debated last in 2015 in the House of Lords, uh, there was a lot of pressure from disabled right, rights groups, uh, the medical profession, uh, a number of charities, as well as Christian and other religious leaders. And uh, we're going to just watch a little video now with some of the clips uh, from that debate, which captures some of the key points made by those opposing any change in the law. So let's say this watch. This bill facilitates death without reference to those most impacted by it. It is an atheist's bill, denying God and denying eternity. Death must not become the new normal to replace compassion and care of humanity, skewing the very meaning of medicine. For me, this bill crosses a Rubicon enshrined in centuries of law and medical ethics that every human life is of value. No one should say they should be better off death. My lords, no one looking back at the treatment during the pandemic of those who were old, disabled or in care homes should have any confidence that mm. when push comes to shove and we're under pressure, our society will always prioritise the needs of vulnerable and disabled people. No amount of safeguards can perfect the human heart. No amount of regulation can make a relative kinder or a doctor infallible. No amount of reassurance can make a vulnerable or disabled person feel equally safe, equally valued, if the law is changed in this way. I oppose this bill as I opposed the bill six years ago in the House of Commons, because legislating to permit the taking of a patient's life so obviously <laughs> crosses the Rubicon. I shudder to hear the stories of those who suffer terribly at the end of their lives. I shudder more at a response which will open the door to ever more lives being brought to an early end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to look at the arguments um, for assisted suicide as well as those against from a Christian perspective. Um, I'm no expert in this area, and as you know, I'm not a medic. Um, but I have been reading a few books. I'll recommend those to you now. 
this is the, probably the most easily accessible one, uh, written by Vaughan Roberts to the uh, Vicar of St. Ebbs in Oxford. Um, very short book, easy to, to, to read in a short period of time, has all the main points in there. Um, John Stott, there's loads of issues in this one, issues facing Christians today. One of those is euthanasia. Um, great perspective there. Peter Saunders is um, the head of Christian Medical Fellowship and, uh, again, has some uh, really useful stuff in there, some great case studies as well. And then John Wyatt is um, a consultant, uh, a medical consultant, and Matters of Life and Death, again, is a really bit deeper, that one, a um, bit more technical, but, again, some really helpful stuff if you want to get more into to the subject. So I've borrowed very heavily from all of those books uh, this evening. Um, I think as, as we look at this issue, we do have to remember that for many people, it's not just a theoretical issue. It is a, it's a personal issue. As people grapple with maybe their own deteriorating physical and mental health, or they seek to care for a loved one in that situation. And legally, it's very complex as well. Uh, Vaughan Roberts highlights uh, in the beginning of his book uh, three different stories, three different examples of people. Um, let me just say... Uh, Summarize those for you now, those, those three examples. One is uh, someone called Frances Inglis. So she um, injected her son Tom with a massive overdose of heroin that uh, ended his life. Uh, Tom had become brain damaged after an accident. He was doubly incontinent, unable to communicate. And Frances considered what she did a mercy killing. And as she admitted in court to killing her son, she said, I did it with love in my heart. Under the law, she was convicted of murder and given a life sentence, but was released after five years. Then there was Kay Gilderdale, whose 31-year-old daughter, Lynn, had been paralyzed since suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome from the age of 14. Uh, she was in a lot of agony. She received a constant supply of morphine through a syringe driver into her veins. She was able to communicate through, through sign language and participate in online forums. But uh, after she expressed her frustrations with what she considered a miserable excuse for, for her life, she pleaded with her mother to end her life. And uh, her mother eventually gave in to her wishes and gave her two large doses of morphine for her to self-administer. However, the, the doses didn't prove fatal. Uh, she had to inject her with more morphine and air, which eventually killed her. She was found not guilty of attempted murder, but guilty of assisted suicide, although their sentence was suspended. And then finally, Kate Shaney, 85, who suffered from dementia. She asked a doctor to assist her suicide, which was legal in a particular state in the US. Uh, the doctor declined her wish because he felt that she didn't meet the required uh, criteria for mental competence, uh, and so referred her to a psychiatrist. Her daughter accompanied her to the consultation with a psychiatrist, uh, who reported that it felt like her daughter was more keen for the assisted suicide than she was herself. A report suggested that Kate accepted the psychiatrist's verdict, but her daughter didn't and demanded a second opinion from another psychiatrist who did approve her death. She was given pills which she took to end her life. And that last case... Um, Clearly, that was a legal situation because it was uh, permitted in the state of Oregon. But uh, I think, like many others, that particular one shows the potential for abuse of a system in places where assisted suicide is legal. So as I said, what, are, what these three and many others show, I'm sure you'll have read, read about them in the media, 
is just how complex the subject is and how people's views are often formed by personal experience. We all know that one day we will die. But the question we're looking at this evening is, should others be allowed to help us end our life? How do we as Christians answer that question? Well, before we go any further, it might be helpful just to have some definitions of terms you've used or you've heard used. Uh, It's worth noting that those who are campaigning for assisted suicide will often use euphemisms to to soften the impact of what they're, they're saying, such as merciful release. Voluntary euthanasia societies have changed its name to dignity in dying. There's lots of different definitions of euthanasia you'll find. This is the Oxford English Dictionary definition, which defines it as the painless killing of a patient suffering from an incurable and painful disease or in an irreversible coma. And that can be divided into voluntary euthanasia, the killing of someone who's asked for their life to be ended, and involuntary killing of someone who's not been able to give their consent to their death, maybe because of their mental or physical condition. And the other main term term used is assisted suicide, which is helping someone else take their own life, for example, giving them pills to take to end it. I think it's also important to differentiate between euthanasia, which is intentional killing, and which is illegal in most jurisdictions in the world, and withholding treatment from a terminally ill patient. So one is causing someone to die. The other one is allowing them to die and therefore is not uh, euthanasia. And that may be, for example, where uh, someone with a terminal illness refuses medical treatment that may prolong their life and dies as a result. Or where a doctor refuses intrusive medical treatment because the side effects outweigh uh, any benefits it may bring in relieving symptoms or extending life. Now, the, the debate's become more, re, more live in recent years, but it's not a new one. The, uh, the Hippocratic Oath, which dates from the 5th century BC, has been the basis of medical uh, codes of ethics uh, over centuries and that are still in use today. And that includes these words. I will use treatment to help the sick according to my judgment and ability, but I will never use it to injure or wrong them. I will not give poison to anyone, though asked to do so. Neither will I suggest such a plan. So why has it become a bigger issue in recent years? What are the changes that have taken place in society that have had a particular impact on this issue? Well, I just want to suggest a few here. Um, it would be interesting to discuss this in a short while. Medical improvements. Since 1960, life expectancy in the UK has increased from around 70 to around 80. Uh, What that means is there is a greater possibility of dementia and disability. Uh, 6% of those between the age of 75 and 80 suffer with dementia, and that rises to 25% in the over 90s. And that puts more strain on an already overstretched care system. But at least in this country, we do have a care system which is not the case in many other countries. Uh, linked to that is social change. Whereas previously extended families all lived in the same area, today families are more dispersed, less able to offer practical help to an ageing parent, as many of you, I'm sure, will know yourselves. Fifty years ago, the majority of people would have died at home. 
Now it is less than 20%. So death is no longer a, a normal everyday experience for, for all family members, but has become institutionalized. And it means that many people grow up to adulthood without actually having seen a dead body. And then there are philosophical changes. Um, first of all, there's a much greater emphasis on personal freedom and autonomy, the freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, and for as long as I want. And that means, therefore, choosing the person I want to be, um, choosing my sexuality, choosing my gender, choosing what I want to do with my body. So there's a feeling that just as I have the right to decide how I live my life, shouldn't I therefore have a right to decide how I end my life? And linked to a desire for um, personal freedom is a loss of respect for authority, be it um, the government or any other institution. And therefore the feeling that no authority should be, able to be, should be able to deny me my personal rights. Then there is quality of life. There's been a huge improvement in the standard of living since the, the end of the Second World War in this country. A huge opportunities for leisure activities, which means people have certain expectations in terms of the standard of living, the quality of life that they expect, what it means to live a happy and meaningful life. And we'll see the impact of that again shortly. And then finally, origin of life. There's been a change in views on that with fewer people believing in a creator God to whom we are accountable, but that we are the product of random forces and therefore not actually that much different from animals. And so consequently, fewer people believe in an afterlife, or at least not the Christian understanding of that. So some of these changes will help us to, to understand the different arguments made to support assisted suicide, which we'll come on to, to now. The first of those is an end to pain. Now, when we think of animals in pain, it is accepted that the kind thing to do is to end their pain by putting them to sleep. And so the argument goes, well, why should it be any different for humans? As John Wyatt, author of the, the book Matters of Life and Death, said, when he wrote the first edition of his book in 1998, the euthanasia debate was, was much more focused on people dying in uncontrollable pain, especially those with terminal cancer. And although there is still a, a fear of a painful end to life, uh, advances in pain control and palliative care have actually made this less of a reality. As Baroness Finley of Landarth, um, a palliative care expert, said, modern symptom control is moving fast. You do not have to kill the patient to kill the pain. No law stops pain control, but ignorance does. And Wyatt points out that the diseases in focus now that are more likely to be... Um, chronic debilitating neurodegenerative diseases such as motor neurone disease than, than others like cancer that cause the pain. So the focus has moved more, therefore, on to loss of quality of life, not so much um, bringing an end to pain. If I can't enjoy doing all the things I like to do, I used to be able to do, then I might as well just be dead. Daniel James, for example, is a promising young rugby player played for the National Youth Squad, but at the age of 22, suffered an injury playing rugby that left him paralyzed from the chest downwards. A year later, because, his, because he loathed his new life, 
his parents agreed to take him to the Dignitas Center in Switzerland, where he received medically assisted suicide. And as John White suggests, often what is driving the case for assisted suicide is not just a compassion for those who are suffering, but a fear that this may happen to me. People can't bear the thought of losing the ability to enjoy the pleasures of life they currently enjoy. In addition to the fear of pain or disability is the fear of indignity and dependence. As we've said, most people are not normally in great pain when they die, but they may have to experience the indignity of being washed and fed, have somebody else help them get dressed. They may have tubes sticking out of them. And many people fear the indignity of incontinence. Someone wrote this in their living will. I wish it to be understood that I fear degeneration and indignity far more than I fear death. I ask my medical attendants to bear this statement in mind when considering what my intentions would be in any uncertain situation. And it's not just a fear of the indignity, but a fear of becoming dependent on others, of becoming a child again. And the more independent, independent or autonomous a life some of the people have led, the greater that fear will probably be. White quotes the philosopher Nietzsche who said this. He said, in a certain state, it is indecent to live longer, to go on vegetating in cowardly dependence on physicians and machinations. After the meaning of life, the right to life has been lost. That ought to prompt a profound contempt in society. I want to die proudly when it is no longer possible to live proudly. And that has raised, of course, the question, when does a fear of indignity or, or dependence become an issue of pride? Finally, freedom to choose. I guess in summary, the main argument that is used in the case for assisted suicide is the freedom to choose. Uh, just as those who campaign for relaxation of the abortion laws are called pro-choice, um, so are those campaigning for euthanasia. They're pro-choice. As Dignity and Dying say on their website, assisted dying allows a dying person the choice to control their death if they decide their suffering is unbearable. And if personal freedom, as we have seen, has become such an important value in our society, then inevitably that is extended to the freedom to choose when I die. We're going to come on to the arguments for, for, assisted, for against assisted suicide that Christians will make. But before we do that, it might just be good for you um, just to have a break with a couple of people around you just to discuss the points I've made. To what extent do you think the changes in society that I've outlined, maybe others you can think of, um, have led to a greater acceptance of assisted suicide or a greater campaign for assisted suicide? To what extent do you think those two things are linked, the changes we see in society and to the arguments used for assisted suicide? Might we just have a few minutes uh, discussing that before we move on? Well, if we can uh, move on to the next uh, section, hopefully you've had some helpful discussion already. 
So what is the Christian response? How do we respond to this issue as, as Christians? And here Vaughan Roberts uh, very helpfully points to what the Bible teaches about um, what it means to be human and uh, shows how believing in a creator God means that Christian, Christians attribute a much higher value to every human being than those of a secular worldview. And it gives three biblical reasons against uh, assisted suicide, which are, are these, the value and meaning of human life. As Christians, we believe that life is a gift from God, and we don't therefore have the right to, to take our own lives, let alone help somebody else take their life. Our life is sacred. Only God has the authority to determine the beginning and end of life. The sixth commandment is, you shall not murder. Moreover, human beings have value because, as we read earlier from Genesis 1, we've been made in the image of God. We therefore have unique abilities that distinguish us from, from animals, with the capacity for, for rational thought, moral decision-making, social interaction. And in particular, we are able to enjoy a relationship with God um, and experience his, his love. And someone may respond to that by saying, well, how can we love a person who is unable to respond to that love? For example, somebody in a persistent vegetative state. Well, that is where grace comes in, because grace is, in many ways, love to the unresponsive. God loved us when we didn't respond to him, when we were his, his enemies. And so true dignity depends not on what we do, but who we are by creation. And that's where the secular worldview of being human collapses. Because if the only thing that distinguishes us from an, from an animal is our higher capacities, you take those capacities away and there's no reason left for dignity. There's no reason left for living. But according to Christians, our dignity is found in the fact that we've been made in the image of God. Our value doesn't depend on our perceptions of our usefulness. All lives are of equal value, including a helpless baby, a person with severe mental or physical disability, or an old person with dementia who's dependent on carers. And it's insulting to the vulnerable and disabled to suggest that their lives are not worth living. I'm going to watch another little video now. This is an interview with um, Johnny Erickson. Um, some of you will know her story. Uh, she was um, paralyzed as a 17-year-old and has lived the rest of her life, I think she's now in her 70s, um, with that disability. Um, she's going to comment on uh, her view of assisted suicide. Welcome to a spirited debate. I'm Lauren Green. Last November, 29-year-old Brittany Maynard ended her own life taking a doctor-prescribed suicide pill. Maynard suffered from terminal brain cancer and made headlines by moving to Oregon where assisted suicide is legal. Fighting to stop Maynard from carrying out her plans was a woman who has spent almost her entire life in a wheelchair after a diving accident left her a quadriplegic. Johnny Erickson Tata pleaded with Brittany to no avail, but Johnny continues her fight against euthanasia, which she says is gaining more and more support. Uh, Johnny's Christian ministry fights for the disabled, and she joins me now in the studio. Thank you. Welcome for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to be back here. You know, what did you try to say to Brittany to, to, to change her mind? Well, Lauren, life is the most irreplaceable and fundamental condition of the human experience. And to destroy it without 
thinking twice and thinking three or four or five times about the implications. It's such a final exit. It's such a, a, a final and a fatal solution to, to one's pain or fear of the future. Um, I know when I was uh, uh, 17 years old and I broke my neck, I was a quadriplegic. Uh, my hands don't work. My feet don't walk. And when the doctors told me that this was my prognosis, I would be a quadriplegic, um, stuck in a wheelchair without using my hands for the rest of my life, I used to wrench my head violently back and forth on the pillow, hoping to break my neck up at a higher level because I so hated the idea. I was so fearful of the future. I didn't want to live this way. I didn't want to encounter the pain. And I'm just so grateful there were no assisted suicide laws back then, which may have made it um, a possibility for me to uh, procure that wish. Because so many people would have had sympathy for you. Of course, you know, her life has all ended because she's this, you know, virulent, you know, this, this, actri this, this athlete, and now she... Yeah doesn't have that anymore. Yep, absolutely. And uh, no one would think it was a, a wrong thing for a quadriplegic to do. Unfortunately, many people feel that uh, a quadriplegic who wants to end his or her life makes a rational, reasonable choice. But thankfully, there were people who were praying. Thankfully, there were people who were surrounding my bedside, drawing me up out of social isolation, alleviating my depression, connecting me to reality, and on and on and on. And they began to <clears throat> impart to me Hope, hope, and 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 the the idea that you know what, with the grace of God, I think I can do this. That's yeah, quite a moving testimony, isn't it? Well, that is uh, the value and meaning of human life. Uh, let's come on to the the next um, point, which is the dignity of interdependence. To be made in the image of God means we are relational beings. We're we're not just made for relationship with God, but we're made to be able to enjoy relationships with. <laughs> with each other. And what that means is that when an individual takes their life, it inevitably has an impact on others, particularly their friends and family. We like the idea of being independent, but the reality is that we are not. We need others. Uh, we need them when we're well, and we particularly need them when we're not. There's nothing wrong with being dependent on our parents when we are, are children, and there's nothing wrong with being dependent on our children when we become old. I've been at the bedside of uh, many people in the later stages of their life, and what is beautiful to see is the care and love that is shown them by family members. Um, there's no sense of it being a burden, but it is a real privilege to care for the dying person. One wife hardly left her husband's side day and night for a whole week, even when he was no longer conscious. Last year, we heard uh, Leslie Pearson's nursing colleagues, again, who, who kept vigil by her bed in the hospice for many days before she went to be with the Lord. So we are interdependent. Thirdly, Christians believe that suffering is not the ultimate evil. As we said earlier, society values comfort and pleasure. For many, the purpose of life is to find the greatest happiness, and the obvious flip side of that is you avoid pain and suffering in all its different forms at all costs. And that may be through medication, it may um, be through drugs and alcohol or some other form of escape. And it's therefore not surprising that people want to avoid pain when it comes to dying. 
The Bible teaches us that suffering and death were not part of God's original design for, for the world. They rose out of the result of the fall. When Jesus comes again to recreate the world, it will once again be a place where there is no more pain or suffering. However, we can be reassured that at the current time, God is still in control. Uh, he can still use suffering for, for good, which is why we're called as Christians to rejoice in our trials. In James 1, it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The reason we can rejoice in our trials is that they refine our character. They make us more like Christ, the suffering servant. And they help us grow in our faith in God and help us draw closer to him. And hard as it may appear, those goals are far higher than seeking to live a pain-free life. It was because Jesus was willing to undergo suffering on our behalf that we've been made right with God, we've been able to enjoy a relationship with him and know his forgiveness and new life. And that means as Christians we can die well, um, which is what we looked at in the seminar earlier in the year. And if someone is not a Christian and they are offered assistance in dying, then effectively we're closing the door on a possibility for them being saved and spending eternity with God. Another response um, from Christians would be that God calls us to protect the vulnerable. Now, there are many verses throughout the Bible that point to God's compassion, his concern for the, the needy. For example, Psalm 83 says, Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy. If someone's contemplating ending their life, they are by definition vulnerable. If they are otherwise healthy, most uh, people would seek to persuade them against such a decision. Why is it then if somebody is ill or disabled that we might encourage them in that decision? Those are uh, some Christian responses to this subject. But there's also a whole load of um, practical arguments um, made by Christians as well, but also uh, non-Christian charities, um, groups for disabled rights. Uh, the Christian Institute mentions a number of these in their leaflet on assisted suicide, which I, I would recommend you, you get hold of and is in the, the notes at the bottom of your handout. So um, let me just uh, summarize some of these. Uh, linked to the previous point is protecting the vulnerable. The vulnerable need a clear, firm law to protect them. Well, first of all, for themselves, as we heard from Johnny Erickson, you know, she could very easily have um, allowed herself to, to be killed when she was first a paraplegic, but there wasn't a law that allowed it in those, those days. Um, so it's to protect themselves, but it also protects people from the fear of being a financial or an emotional or a care burden on others. Apparently over half of those in Oregon who died by assisted suicide in 2019 and 2020 cited the fear of being a burden on others as a reason for ending their lives. Secondly, the slippery slope. Now, those who campaign for a change in the law say that there would be safeguards in place to protect the vulnerable. 
Um, for example, a person must be over 18, have a terminal illness, that means they're likely to die within six months, um, and have a voluntary, clear, settled and informed wish to end their life. Now, the trouble is, once you have decided in principle that assisted suicide is acceptable in your society, then those safeguards start to disappear. And that's borne out in practice in the Netherlands, Belgium and Canada. For example, in the Netherlands, the safeguard was meant to limit it to those with unbearable suffering. However, there's been a marked increase in euthanasia cases for those with dementia, for patients with psychiatric disorders, and for elderly people who are not um, seriously ill, but just had conditions associated with old age. In Belgium, the law on euthanasia was initially confined to adults, but this was extended in 2014 to allow euthanasia for children with no lower age limit. And it's now applied to people with the first symptoms of chronic diseases like Alzheimer's, patients suffering from depression, and older people suffering a combination of complaints. Cases have increased more than tenfold. And finally, in Canada, a court determined that the restriction to, to the terminally ill was incompatible with Canadian human rights and equality laws. And so it was removed. And just last week, it was reported that there are therefore discussions to allow euthanasia for those with mental health conditions, including those struggling with addiction. Palliative care, another practical response, is that legalizing assisted suicide discourages investment in genuine medical treatment um, and palliative care because, put simply, killing people is far cheaper than caring for them. And in U.S. states that have legalized assisted suicide, terminally ill patients have seen medical insurance companies refusing to fund their treatment but offering to fund assisted suicide. Hospices in Canada that receive over half of their funding from the government have been told they must provide euthanasia or lose that funding. And experts say that almost no patient is beyond the help of palliative care. And the UK apparently is some of the best in the world. So the argument is focus on that, making it sure it is available to everyone. And finally, the impact on doctors. We heard of the, earlier on about the Hippocratic Oath. Um, doctors go into the medical profession to save lives. Assisted suicide will place a very heavy burden on them if they had to take responsibility for killing patients instead of improving their health. And it would undermine the trust between patients and doctors. Finally, just to finish with um, a link to this, so what impact can we have as Christians on our society? Three things. So thing, first of all, helping people see how much they are valued by God. Our value, as we said earlier, doesn't depend on our abilities, it doesn't depend on our usefulness, but on the fact we are made in the image of God, with the ability to enjoy a relationship with him. Nothing that happens to us in this life can change that inherent dignity that we have. Jesus came into this world. He experienced intense suffering to make it possible for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with us each day to give us the strength to cope with life. And because Jesus was resurrected, we can trust that we too will receive resurrection bodies that are fit for eternity. Secondly, 
providing practical care for the marginalised who feel they have no value. We are called as Christians to, to show compassion to the needy. We have an obligation to care for our own elderly parents and family members who can no longer care for themselves, as well as members of the church family. But also those in our communities. Um, you know, the many ways in which we as a church um, are already showing care to the marginalised. A team goes into the Medicroft Care Centre uh, each month. Many of them are suffering from dementia. It is showing they are valued, even if they're at a stage of life where they don't really understand what's going on. The contact team shows love and concern to, to the elderly. The new ministry to recovering addicts is supporting those who are desperate. And some of our church families have got involved in fostering. In all these areas, we're showing that people of value and dignity. They're engaging with society. It's easy to think this is such a complex area. I won't really think about it unless it affects me personally. But we do need to inform ourselves. That's what this, this evening is about. Um, and the fact you're here shows you do care. We could just support Christian groups who campaign against assisted suicide, and that would be a good thing to do. But to back it up with action shows that we really do care. And then finally, looking forward to life beyond death. It's easy to think that life is just too busy to to have the time to think about death. I'll just wait until I get old or ill. The goal of our lives is to be with Jesus for eternity. That's where our lives are heading. That should be the goal, the focus of our lives. This life will be over just like that. And then we have the eternity to look forward to. So let's prepare for where we're going. And let's remember that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It'd be good just to pray about some of these things in, in small groups before we finish. Um, before we do so, has anybody got any questions that um, tonight's thrown up? I'm not saying I'll be able to answer them, because a lot of these things can't be answered with a simple question, without simple answer, can they? But um, does anybody want to make, or maybe even just make a comment, um, maybe from your own experience, uh, or ask a question? Uh, yeah, Len, take that up. Pass the mic round. I've got people living down Meadow Bank, close, older people. They've got their own little enclave. But they feel they've been let down by the church. I'm not throwing things out, but that's how they feel, you know. I mean, uh, come around to people, but people aren't coming around anymore to engage with them, you know. They just feel let down. Yeah, uh, it comes back to that caring in the community, doesn't it? And uh, I think lockdown was great, wasn't it? It sort of gave everybody in the community a sense of awareness of who was living around them in need. I think in some ways we sort of got back to living our busy lives and uh, probably overlooking those we're living next door to with with needs. So, yeah, thanks, Len, for that that challenge. Hi, Neil. Um, Just like to ask you a question because you mentioned animals. And us of us that have animals, we have to make that decision, you know, because they're in pain, as you said. Do you think, I don't know if this is right, is it because animals don't have a soul and we do? Um, I would, that's the way I would answer, yes. Yeah, that's the key difference between us and an animal. Uh, they can't have a relationship with God. Um, and therefore, for them, yeah, life probably isn't worth living if they are in pain. 
and that's why it's generally accepted. It's better for them to, to put an end to it. Yeah, thank you. I think it's just been really interesting to hear about the, um, the whole thing of the slippery slope and the unintended consequences. And the, the one that I found really chilling was the, um, I think you've mentioned in Canada, where um, insurance companies are not funding um, palliative treatment, but they are prepared to fund end of life. And, and I think mm. um, there are huge dangers when people say, oh, there'll be protections in law, but it's quite evident that over a very short time there isn't. Thank you, Neil. It's very helpful. One of the consequences of Western society, particularly what some cynics call the, the grey tsunami, is what they're saying, that people are living a lot longer, is the care privately is financially astronomical. And therefore, um, whilst people would agree with everything you say, they would like to leave things for their family and the care privately is staggering and the resources are increasingly diminishing. So there is almost a healthy guilt or a difficulty with people who would affirm everything we're saying here. And that, I think, is going to be a growing problem, particularly if the NHS isn't as healthy as what it has been, and people are living longer and their cares are getting greater. Uh, it's something that families have to come to terms with, I think, mm. in a much more open way. And hence yeah. the living will, which is an interesting concept. Really. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Jeff, yeah, yeah. This might be the end question, but, but it's not actually a question. It's just an interesting thing that's unique to me particularly. But um, because I've got an ICD, means that if my heart stops, it'll just keep starting again. And I've been told I've got 12 more years on this one. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone knows. I need to find out what happens if I'm vegetative or my heart stops or just keep going. I wonder if then there is a medical intervention that can switch it off other than getting James to come with big magnet or something gigantic <laughs> magnet <laughs> it's something i want to find out about yeah, okay i'll let you two talk about that afterwards i think <laughs> yeah let's do um i only ask you because you know your bible a lot better than myself um helpful scriptures that you could maybe direct us to around god's perspective on life and death. So are there any that are stand out from your kind of research or apologies for putting you straight on the... On I think the, the ones that do talk about just us being created in God's image um, are the ones I read out earlier at the beginning of the service from Genesis is the, the obvious one. But other ones um, in Isaiah that um, talk about the fact that we've been made for his glory um, and uh, we've been redeemed by him. So there's that real value he attaches to, to us. Um, I think also just the, the probably the life of Jesus, the compassion that he shows for the marginalised, the, the vulnerable, um, and uh, yeah, he treats everybody um, equally with the same compassion, and not just those who are able to. He goes, you know, to the, the lepers, doesn't he? Um, the, those begging um, to be healed. So, I guess the life of Jesus as well as Old Testament scripture. Yeah, yeah fine, thank you. On that. I think the other side of things is things like 
it's First Corinthians sixteen four or something like that. This momentary light affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is lacking sometimes is the um, value of suffering, not just how do you avoid it. And God has great compassion. Obviously, it doesn't want us to suffer unnecessarily. But there are that verse and others that imply that there is inherent value in the suffering that he leads us through. Hence, you responded earlier with James you know, be thankful, rejoice when you suffer, not in and of itself, but because it's preparing something that we can't even imagine. And to take that away from people is really sad. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's really helpful, Kathy. Yes, so just for a time of praying, I think it's having tackled such a difficult subject tonight, I think it'd be only appropriate to pray about it. So maybe just again with the people around you. Pray as you feel led. Um, you may have personal issues you want to uh, pray about how it's affected you, but uh, otherwise let's pray about this, this whole subject in our society, really, and how we respond to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our hope in life and death is found in Christ alone, and knowing that our souls belong to him. And we pray that that hope would give us confidence when we are approaching death ourselves. And pray, we pray that you would help us to share that hope with others who appear to have given up on this life. So send us out from here, Lord, with that hope, that confidence, and a desire to love and, uh, and bring that hope to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.